So if it's not obvious yet, you'll know that it is Palm Sunday, but also Passion Sunday at the same time. And uh, you'll see that there's a sermon title in the bulletin, and it's wrong. That's my fault. That was my placeholder title. But uh, don't worry, I will be quoting a passage from G.K. Chesterton's Ball on the Cross later on. I promise, but I meant to title this sermon Palm Passion, which sounds like a terrible new scent for Axe Body Spray or something like that. But today is the Sunday where churches either celebrate Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, this triumphal entry, five days before his crucifixion with people waving palms and shouting Hosanna, but it's also called Passion Sunday in some traditions because this is the beginning of Christ's passion, the last week of Jesus' life when he will suffer. And our word passion comes from The Latin passio, which means to suffer. And it's interesting now how we don't associate this word passion with suffering. It means something more like intense enthusiasm for something or a a really intense feeling. There's the passion that lovers have. There's the passion that you can have for a hobby. Uh, Basketball is one of my passions. I care a lot about it. But I don't suffer for it. Not usually. But I grew up calling this, this Palm Sunday, but I like, I, like, I like expanding it to this notion of Passion Sunday too. Because it reminds us, even on this day of celebration, that Jesus suffered. In fact, the only word that we get about Jesus' life from his birth and then up before he dies in the creed is that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. That one word being enough to to sum up Jesus' life. It was one of passion for God's lost sheep. And some of us, I venture to say, would say that suffering could go a long way. Not all the way, but a long way to describe what it's like to live as a human being on planet Earth. Yes, there's joy, but, but we suffer and we struggle and we do our best. And the older you get, the more you realize just how much everyone is in the fight of their lives. And I've been reminded of that this past week about a dozen times. That we know what it's like to suffer. And Jesus Christ does too. More than we could imagine. And so as we look at this passage here on Palm Passion Sunday, we're going to look at three different things. The symbols, the seekers, and the sign. So first, the symbols. Let's imagine that the unthinkable happened today after church. You were crossing the street to go back to your car. Thankfully, ample street parking is available. Uh, But that's one of the dangers. You don't have a parking lot. You get across the street and, and you're struck by a vehicle. Terrible tragedy. It doesn't kill you, but it sends you into a coma that lasts for an indeterminate amount of time. And you're in the hospital. And after that, you awake from your slumber and you look around your hospital room. And in this scenario, your memory, you haven't, there's no amnesia. You've kept all your memory. And so just by looking at the symbols that adorn your hospital room, you would be able to tell what time of year it is. There's shamrocks and, and leprechauns and pots of gold. St. Patty's Day. There's American flags and fireworks. Fourth of July. If there's Easter eggs and bunnies... Easter, trees, and Santa Christmas. Symbols help orient us in time. 
They clue us in on the season, on, on what's going on. And, and if you've ever lived in a, a non-Christian country um, for any period of time or visited one around the time of a major American holiday, one of the most disorienting, disorienting things about it is that the symbols that you expect to be there aren't there. It's disorienting. The season and the symbols, they don't line up. I was in Israel in February of 2012, and we went to one of the truly modern holy sites, um, a shopping mall. And so, uh, well, we were in a food court nonetheless, an Israeli food court. It was quite the cross-cultural experience. Uh, And so we went there, and as we were walking around the mall, it's just like a mall anywhere else, in that they had one of those cheap, like, pop-up seasonal stores that had opened. You know, you see those always in the sort of dark corner of the mall that no one ever visits, and they have that too. And so while we were there, I saw this store that was filled with what appeared to me to be Halloween costumes. Only it was in the middle of February, and they don't celebrate Halloween in Israel. And so the symbols did not match my expectation for the season. And so I asked our guide, what's up with that store, that Halloween store? And he informed me that it was for the Jewish festival of Purim. When uh, the Jewish people celebrate the events that are recorded in the book of Esther, which is when Esther is this young woman who, uh, through this plot, becomes the queen and she saves her people from total annihilation at the hands of this evil Persian official named uh, Haman. And so on Purim, in order to commemorate that, people get all dressed up in costumes and they engage in revelry. Basically, they dress in costumes and they get drunk. And so it's like every other holiday in every other culture, every other place in the world. Dress up and get drunk. But as an American, for me, I thought these costumes and masks, they mean Halloween and the fall. But for people living in Israel, these symbols mean something totally different. And Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on, on Palm Sunday, it was filled with symbolism. But if we were in that world of that day, these are not the symbols that you would expect to see. It'd be like putting up a Christmas tree in July or shooting off fireworks on Thanksgiving. The symbols didn't match the season. And so we have to ask, ask, what is the reason that these two things don't line up? And what I mean when I say that the symbols didn't match up with the season is, is that we have to remember that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem on Passover to celebrate the Passover. And the Passover had its own rich symbolism. There's the lamb and the blood on the doorposts and the lintel, and and especially the Passover meal itself is is rich with symbolism, the unleavened bread, the roasted lamb, the wine. It's, of course, developed over the centuries, but if you've ever been to a Passover Seder, the meal itself, you know that each and every food is not just a food, but it means something about God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. And so here we have Jesus entering Jerusalem and people are waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna. And, 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 and again, it's like people yelling, Merry Christmas on Easter. Waving palm branches was not associated with the Passover, but, but Hanukkah. And just a, a refresher, Hanukkah was also known as the Feast of Dedication. And so this was, was the, the, the festival where, where people celebrated the rededication of the temple in Jerusalem, following the great revolt of of the Maccabees in the middle of the second century before Christ. And so this is when the Maccabee family had led this Jewish uprising to to defeat their Seleucid overlords. And so the Jewish Maccabees kicked out their pagan rulers, 
They purified and rededicated the temple. And as the Maccabean king rode into Jerusalem after this great victory, he had vanquished these pagans, these enemies. The people went out to meet him, and they waved palm branches to celebrate this victory. And so palms were a symbol of of national pride. They were a symbol of military victory. They were a symbol befitting conquering royalty. In fact, a year after Jesus' resurrection, in, in about the, or years after Jesus' resurrection, about the year 66, Jews revolted again against Roman rule. And one of the first things they did was to mint their own coin because they had a new government. They weren't going to use the Roman coins anymore. So they made their own coins. And one of the symbols that they placed on their coinage was a palm branch. The palm to them was like an eagle to us, a symbol of freedom and of national pride and identity. And so the people are waving the symbol of nationalistic pride and conquering royalty, and they are exclaiming, Hosanna, which means save us, which doesn't have some you know, great spiritual or theological meaning to them. It simply means rescue us. And what did they want rescuing from? Well, that was a dangerous question to ask. Because we can see that this, this symbolic environment is, is utterly explosive. It's the Passover. So Jerusalem has swelled with, with tens, even hundreds of thousands of people. And, and they're pilgrims coming to celebrate God delivering his people from an evil pagan empire that had kept them enslaved. And they're waving palm branches coming out to meet Jesus, which is a symbol of a Jewish king defeating an evil pagan empire and reestablishing the pure worship of God. And on top of all that, to leave nothing to the imagination, the people say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. It doesn't take a genius to see what's going on here. The people are proclaiming that Jesus is a king who is coming to his capital to do again what the Maccabees had done before. He's going to drive the pagans out. He's going to reestablish the pure worship of God. And they were so excited because he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And so if he can do that, I mean, what's a few Roman soldiers? And so in the midst of all this symbolism, though, all this expectation of the people, Jesus picks a symbol of his own. This happens immediately after the crowd, hail, crowd hails him as king. John tells us, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. And the reason that he did this wasn't because he was tired or because, you know, he, he wanted to arrive in style. It was to fulfill, as John tells us, the words of the prophet Zechariah. And we think of, of donkeys, and they're not very glamorous. We think of them as beasts of burden. But in the ancient Near East, donkeys were actually a, a suitable mount for royalty to ride. And so if you were a king and you were riding on a donkey, it meant something. It, it sent a message. Because kings, could, they could ride another animal. If you were expecting someone to ride something in the ancient world, you'd say, well, get on a horse. But when they rode horses, it meant they were going out to war. They were going out to do battle. But if you're riding on a donkey, it meant that you were coming in peace. And so here's Jesus riding into Jerusalem to face his death. And he comes as a king to bring peace. Shalom. 
wholeness. And so we can never forget that as Jesus enters into his passion. That that's why he suffered, to bring us peace. By making peace through the blood of the cross. And so the symbol that Jesus chose at this moment, it it subverted the symbols of the people that were about triumphalism and nationalism. And we can never forget that. Especially, always, but especially in in a current national moment where we are tempted with with symbols and and ideology that are antithetical to the way of Jesus. I was reminded of this this past week uh, in this excellent article I read by... Michael Gerson in The Atlantic. And he said, when we think about the way of Jesus now and and, and what's going on, it's not just about style, but it's about substance. It's about the, the, the elevation of materialism, the equation of financial and social success with human achievement and worth which is a negation of the Christian teaching about the absolute value of everyone, especially the least of these. It's about the elevation of tribalism and hatred for the other that stand in direct opposition to Jesus' radical ethic of neighbor love. It's about the temptation towards strength worship and contempt for your lesser, for losers and vicious mockery that smacks more of Nietzsche than Christ. It's this temptation to believe the anti-beatitudes. Blessed are the proud. Blessed are the ruthless. Blessed are the shameless. Blessed are the arrogant. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after fame. And that's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is the way of self-humiliation, of putting to death pride and contempt for those whom it is so easy for us to despise and dismiss and want to defeat. Jesus is triumphantly. It's actually a part of his humiliation. Normally when we think of it, we're like, okay, this is the peak and then it's all downhill from here. But St. Augustine, in his commentary on this passage, captures something so beautiful that this was not actually Jesus's, you know, crowning moment, but it was part of his humiliation. Because he says, what honor was it for Jesus to be hailed as the king of Israel? How great was it for the king of eternity to become the king of humanity? Christ was not the king of Israel so he could exact tribute, put swords in his soldiers' hands, and subdue his enemies by open warfare. He was the king of Israel in exercising kingly authority over their souls, in consulting for their eternal interests, in bringing into his heavenly kingdom those whose faith, hope, and love were centered in himself. For the Son of God, the Father's equal, the word by whom all things were made in his good pleasure to be king of Israel was a demotion, not a promotion, a sign of his pity, not an increase of his power. And so let us never lose sight of that, that as followers of Jesus, every promotion we get, every advance that we have in in worldly success and status is actually a demotion because it demands of us that we become servants of more and more people. So those are the symbols. 
But how about those seekers? So when Jesus enters Jerusalem, the, the Pharisees, they're upset. They say, we can see where this is going. This is going to spiral out of control. Uh, the people are going to join Jesus. They're going to get all excited that this revolt is going to happen. And Rome is going to crush us and we're all going to get killed. They see where this is ending. And they, hopeless, they hopelessly exclaim, the whole world has gone after him. And so no sooner do they do that than John tells us that some Greeks who were there at the festival, they wanted to see Jesus. The Greeks represent what the Pharisees had had feared, the whole world going after Jesus. And who these Greeks were, we're not sure, not necessarily Jewish converts, probably God-fearers who admired the Jewish faith and, and Jewish ethics and kept parts of the law but didn't go all the way to becoming full converts because as an adult male, that meant you had to get circumcised and that was a less than appealing proposition for full conversion to Judaism. And so these Greeks represent those who are seeking after God. Which makes me think of Easter because next Sunday we hope and pray that there's going to be some people in the sanctuary who we don't normally see. People who are seeking after, if only for a day, God, folks who go to church only once or twice a year, the cheesters, as I call them, and they're seekers. And sometimes it's easy, let's be honest, to get annoyed with the cheesters. I've experienced this before in other congregations where I've served. There's the grumbling, where are these people the other 50, 51 weeks of the year, you know? And they sit in your spot. And they take your parking spot sometimes, too. Like, like, they just don't understand, and it's more crowded, so it's harder to move around in the back of the sanctuary when you're going to get coffee and cookies. And maybe you don't even, maybe the coffee will run out next Sunday because people will be drinking it. So, Caleb, we need a couple bags, please. Okay. But they're seeking, if only for a day, right? Sirs, we want to see Jesus. And what's fascinating is that the Greeks tell Philip they want to see Jesus. And Philip tells Andrew, and Andrew tells Jesus. So he hears this, okay, these Greeks, they want to see you. And we expect, oh, Jesus being Jesus, he's going to say, of course, bring him in, come on. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he says some cryptic things about dying. And so how does this make any sense? The Greeks say, sirs, we wish to see Jesus. Jesus gets the message, and his response is this, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves his life, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What does any of that have to do with the request of the seeking Greeks? that they want to see Jesus. And the clue comes in the part of Jesus' response that I didn't quote. Because right before he says this about the grain of wheat falling to the ground, he says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And in John, whenever Jesus talks about the hour, he's talking about his death. And whenever he talks about glorification or being glorified, he's talking about being lifted up on the cross. And so in Jesus' understanding, it's that lifting up on the cross that is going to be the opportunity for the whole world to be drawn to himself. And it's not important that the Greeks see him now, at this moment. 
What's important is that they and the whole world see him then. And Jesus is teaching here. It's all about paradox. You want to gain your life? Lose it. You want to be great? Be a servant. You want to bear fruit? Die. Things that don't seem to make glance at first sense, sense at first glance. But the heart of the Christian faith is paradox. It's a cross. A symbol of horrible death that is also a symbol of eternal life. And I love uh, what G.K. Chesterton in, in, in The Ball on the Cross, what he says about this contradiction, this paradox that is at the heart of Christianity. So it's this... If you read the book, it's this scene at the very beginning that has nothing to do with the rest of the book, or it's very only tangentially related. It's very confusing, uh, but it's really, really good. And so there's this Professor Lucifer, you can guess sort of who he is, uh, and a monk named Michael who he has kidnapped. And I think the idea was he was going to kidnap the monk and Professor Lucifer, they were going to go to another planet, but they end up instead crashing on the dome of uh, uh, St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Once you've ever been to London, you know it's this huge, gigantic, massive cathedral with this huge dome with a cross on top of it. And so uh, at this moment, uh, Dr. Lucifer, who is the consummate rationalist and materialist, takes this opportunity to, to show his disdain for Christianity because it's irrational. And he says to this monk, he says, look at this symbol of your faith. It's irrational. It's ugly. It's going at cross purposes. You have these two lines intersecting, going in completely opposite directions. And so he says, away with the thing. The very shape of it is a contradiction in terms. And then the monk replies, what you say is perfectly true, said Michael with serenity. But we like contradictions in terms. Man is a contradiction in terms. He is a beast whose superiority to other beasts consists in having fallen. That cross is, as you say, an eternal collision. So am I. That is struggle in stone. Every form of life is a struggle in flesh. At the heart of Christianity is paradox. Because human life itself is paradoxical. And that's what Jesus points out in the three paradoxes at the, at the end of this passage in, in response to the seekers. And the first paradox is that it's only through death that life comes. And the second is that only by spending life do you retain life. And lastly, that greatness only comes through service. And just a brief word on each, but this notion that only through death comes life. This is true, and we, we, we experience it because we know if something new wants to live, then something else has to die. It might be your selfishness, it might be your desire to sleep in, it might be your laziness, your comfort, your desire for security, but in order for something to truly live, something truly new to live, something else has got to die. And then there's this spending your, only spending your life do you retain it. It's better to burn out than, than rust out. And it's Christianity. It's, it's not about taking a leap of faith. It's about this faith of leap. It's about risk-taking. It's about really spending your life living for something greater than, than just going to work. Or making it through to retirement. It's about spending your life in service of something greater than yourself. And lastly, only greatness comes through service. And, and, and to us, this is like 
a common sense idea. But if you lived in the ancient world, there's no sense that a servant was great. And so that's one of the things that we, we just have baked in, having grown up in a, in a Christian culture, one heavily influenced by Christianity. And so when we think of all the greatest people that we know, or person who's had the biggest influence on us, I can almost guarantee that to a person, we think of someone who has been a servant. Someone who has given much for the benefit of others. So that's what Jesus offers the seekers. And that's what we have to offer seekers, is the paradox of the cross. That if you want to live, you're going to have to follow him there. And it's to that cross that we now turn. More specifically to the sign that was placed on the cross by Pilate, written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And so what do we learn from this sign and its three languages? And the first is the universal nature of the message of Christ. It's for everyone. So these were the most important languages in the region in that day. And so unbeknownst to him, Pilate's sign is the very first missionary sharing the message of who Jesus is. It's in public. It's at the crossroads of the city. People are going to walk by and they're going to see it. And so it's only at the cross that the message of Jesus begins to be translated and cross-cultural and linguistic and religious boundaries. And so from the outset, the cross is the missionary message that Christians bear into the world. And the deep mystery of of faith is that this man dying in this way in these circumstances is good news for the entire world. How does that make sense? How is this death good news for all of us? How does it accomplish what we claim it accomplishes, taking away the sins of the world? It does, and one of our challenges always as a church, is to figure out how do we share that message in South Minneapolis in the year of our Lord, 2018. We still got that same message that that sign did. The crucified Jesus is king. So the sign reveals the universal message of the cross, but it also reveals the universal rule of Christ over all I mean, Hebrew was the language of the world's greatest religion. Greek was the language of learning. Latin was the language of law and government. And the sign being in these three languages declares Christ's lordship over all. The great English commentator on the whole Bible, Matthew Henry, says, In Hebrew, the oracles of God were recorded. In Greek, the learning of the philosophers. And in Latin, the laws of the empire. In each of these, Christ is proclaimed king, in whom are hid all the treasures of revelation wisdom, and power. There is no area of human life or human endeavor that isn't touched by the cross and isn't ruled over by Christ. Not one square inch. And the religious leaders object because they don't consider Jesus their king. To to, to them, he's just another pretender, another false messiah. But Pilate says, what I have written, I have written. And I close with these words from from the great missionary scholar Leslie Newbegin. He says, Pilate refuses absolutely to alter the title 
And the reader knows that what he has written will stand. Not because Pilate is stubborn, but because he is an unwitting witness to the truth. On the cross, Jesus reigns. That's the one takeaway today. On the cross, Jesus reigns over everything. And so as we walk towards Easter and we enter deeper and deeper into Christ's passion this week, keep your eyes on our King on the cross. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.